All right, y'all. It's Jean Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations. And we are um, coming up on, oh, yeah, that holiday season (laughs) that some of us dread, some of us love. I have totally mixed feelings about this year. Really, if I see one more phony television ad for the holidays, I am going to literally, you know, <laughs> up Chuck, I think, is one of the ways of saying it. But um, uh, because it's just this, I don't know, there's just something so bothersome about making it into such a commercial thing. Absolutely. Not a highly religious person, but it's, you know, this is the solstice. This is a spiritual time of the year, a meditative time of year, a time where you're supposed to be kind of uh, like, you know, regenerating and so on. And so kind of leave us alone already. You know, let us <laughs> do that. Um, and not to mention the Trump who stole Christmas. That's going to be in our newsletter next week. Watch for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've been seeing our our, um, our cartoons, but I'm really proud of them. And uh, this one is pretty good, too. All right. So um, this is the season for the art of giving and the giving of art. Because I really want everybody in the city of New Orleans to think about the alternative of giving their friends and family and associates a work of art by a living artist here in New Orleans instead of just the usual uh, ugly Christmas sweaters and socks and uh, vacuum cleaners and irons and whatever. I don't know, you know, the the things that I see on television. Um, because we have so many creative artists working in New Orleans right now. It's just phenomenal since I've lived here. You know, you could practically count them on on a couple hands when I first came here, and now y'all are just all over the place, like some kind of great big ant farm. It's really great. (laughs) Actually, isn't there? There's some art project called Ant Something. I don't remember what it is or where it is, but... You know what called, I'm talking about? I think it's about? called the Ant Farm, yeah. The Ant Farm. But I think it's where, oh, I shouldn't speak to it because I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's in the... Bring your mic a little closer. I think yeah. it's in either New Mexico or Arizona somewhere, but I'm pretty sure it's called the West, Ant Farm. I, I have that Southwest feeling yeah, about it, too. Yeah. All right, so um, I have two very creative people in the studio with me right now. Pippin Frisbee Calder. I'm going to repeat that name. Pippin Frisbee Calder. And um, a, a new friend. I mean, it's not like we've never bumped into each other before, but um, Chris Christie <laughs> Wood, yes, who is with the Lemieux Gallery. Correct. And she kind of runs things over there. I do. Um, so we have a gallery person and an artist. And I, so, because I want you to hear it from them. I mean, you, you hear me all the time talking about. Uh, how exciting our our community is. But I want you to hear from the people who are actually um, out there on the streets making the art and selling it. So, Pippin, why don't you start? Uh, uh, Tell me about what what your life in New Orleans is all about as an artist and um, reflect with me about your friends who make art also. and, And on the one hand, the struggle. Of course, on the other hand, the incredible creative context that you work in, uh, which we all love so much, if you would just pay us a little better. And um, and then we'll switch over uh, to Christy and hear a little bit more about, um, you know, the job of trying to make sure that that work gets into the homes and offices and 
institutional settings of people. Well, thanks for having me, Jane. Um, yeah, uh, well, of course, being in New Orleans, like New Orleans, like you said, there's tons of really, really amazing artists, and so um, part of being here is um, being constantly inspired by all the art that is available. Um, and then also part of this season is we're coming out of the summer, which for most artists locally is a really, really dry period, and, and it's really tough. Um, mm. And so this time right. of year when people decide to buy local art as opposed to buying things from, the, you know, kind of bigger stores, it actually makes a huge impact because this is the point when a lot of us are just sort of coming out of a really tough period. And so it, it can sometimes mean, mean a really – make a huge difference for an individual artist in town. And um, – yeah, I've been very lucky to have worked in a lot of different settings in this town. Like I worked at, I sold art at the Frenchman Night Market for about four years. Um, now you can choose between the Palace Market and the Art Garden. They're both there instead I, of the I Frenchman. I say where they are so people know about. Uh, one of the things we want to do as we talk is is help people understand how and where to buy art. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a great spot. Um, that whole area. It's a, I think it's six one nine Frenchman Street, but it's right across from DVA, right next to the Spotted Cat, and the Art Garden is right there. And it's um, that's that space is just fabulous. And then the the Palace Market also has a ton of artists. And between them, they probably have about almost a hundred artists. Um, Get out. Yeah, and it's I think it's I don't know what the hours are these days, but usually it's five days a week. It's, and it's usually pretty late in the evening, yeah. if I remember correctly. Goes till too. one. Yeah, I think. so you can. Go have your drink and then go buy some art. Yeah, yeah, or go that listen to music. That sounds like a winning <laughs> yeah. formula. Take a, have a drink on Frenchman Street, get a little happy, and then walk into a gallery and yeah, buy some art. Yeah, and the caliber of work is is dramatic there. I mean, they have stuff that you can buy for twenty dollars, or you can buy stuff for you know a thousand dollars out there. And so there's a really broad spectrum of work. And then um, I'm going to use, since we're talking about selling art, um, we've got a, a grand opening this weekend, or this week, Friday, um, from 7 to 9.30. Uh, I have my studio that I have my work in also as a gallery, and we're having like a whole warehouse opening of all the artists. There's six of us in there. And we're going to be opening up our doors and having um, – Food and music and um, and lots of Yeah, what's of art. an art opening without food and music, I right? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and drinks, of course. Cause <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's at 139 Melly Street in Araby. And, and Millie. So, Millie? Is it Millie? Uh, that's how I hear most I'm, people. I'm new to Araby. I know. <laughs> I hear them say Mealy, and, and you know, all, all the names down there are pronounced weirdly, like, I live off um, D-E-S, L-O-N-D-E-S Street, and they say um, Deslon, mm -hmm. so it's not Delon, yeah. you know, and then, and, and so on and so on, so, I, but I th I've heard Mealy, I could be wrong, too. Well, I think part of a grand opening is learning how to pronounce the street that you're on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, because we're all new to Araby, we've all been and, there. And for you know, a few an months. open studio event is a great way to buy art because you are really seeing uh, the art in the context of 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 where it's made. Mm -hmm. And of course, the artist is always there, so you're able to really communicate with the artist. And you know, that's how I think most real collectors become collectors is when they interface with the artist and learn more about it. And I, I want people to not be intimidated mm -hmm. about art because one of the real uh, fallouts from having lost arts education mm -hmm. 
is that people feel uninformed, unfamiliar, uncertain of themselves, insecure, and are afraid to talk to dealers and artists about art. And if you live in a place like New York, where I have lived, they can be pretty snotty in those galleries, let's right. face it. But that's not true here. No, Mm-mm. absolutely not. No. So, you know, let's talk about galleries for a minute. Oh, can, sure. I, can I say one last thing really quick? Sure. Before we, I, and so I just wanted to say on that, what's really exciting about this opening is it's um, it's got all the artist studios, so they all have their individual spaces, and then there's also a gallery, a professional gallery, that's going to be just showcasing them in a gallery setting. So you kind of have this fun, unique opportunity to sort of, of see, both. A, see both, which is sort of usually you only see one. Right. So. That's a really good point. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so happy to be here with Pippin because we've shown Pippin at the gallery before. So I, I, we go back a little ways. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, on the note of open studios, they're also great for galleries because it's an opportunity for me to go meet new artists that I may want to show in the gallery. But um, you had a good point about galleries being um, – not well, with a lack of art education, people not feeling them being like approachable or a place you can just walk in, or maybe not a place where you can buy gifts. But definitely, there are galleries on Jewelry Street that have um, price points all over the spectrum where you can find things for um, starting collectors or for gifts for people. I mean, one of the things my business partner and I really wanted to do when we took over the gallery in 2015 was to make it more accessible and to bring on a lot um, or more younger and emerging artists that aren't selling works for $20,000 but maybe are selling works for $1,000 or even a couple hundred dollars so people can realize that you can um, enjoy and collect work without, you know, breaking the bank. You know, um, Tannen uh, showed some work in the Boyd Satellite gallery recently in the back um, area and um, I I put out a lot of social media on it so we had a pretty good stream of people coming through there and people you know Tana's art is challenging that's not just pretty work it's Mm -hmm. it's it's thoughtful work. Yeah. Um, so I would watch people, and I, I, the ones that sort of lingered and were curious, I would ask them. So I said, do you like art? And and they would say yes. I said, well, do you buy art? No, I don't. I said, why not? Oh, I can't afford it. I said, really? You see what you're wearing? You know, that shirt, those pants, socks, and shoes, and the hat? For the same price as that, you could buy art. There is so much accessible art in New Orleans because we are not New York. Let's face it. This is not, you know, this. Have you seen this movie? Is it called The Cost of Everything or The Price of Everything? You have to see it. It's on Netflix, and it is about the auction scene in New York. And if you want to sell something elitist and disgusting, you have to watch this movie. (laughs) It's really – and and the woman who's like the star, um, I guess – person for I believe it's I don't remember whether it's Sotheby's or Christie's but one of the two I'm, I'm sure she's extremely proud of herself and I just wanted to like Ugh, go go find some other country to live in but um, anyway so there is um, a lot of variety there is yeah. so let's talk um, let's talk a little bit about the all the different kinds of art that are out there because most people kind of think about jazz fest posters, <laughs> right? And uh, which is okay, sure, but um, photography—that's always easy for folks to kind of Especially get. Especially now with photo nola. It's photo nola, yeah. yep. yep. Oh, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because you know what? I just realized I forgot to get that into my um, newsletter, and I'll, I'll put out a separate thing on it. But photo nola. Okay. Um, 
great. So uh, here's something on it. But um, uh, but there's prints. There's um, you go through the different media. Yeah, well, well, there's prints, and we have a great community print shop called the New Orleans Community Print Shop. Um, they actually just moved, so they won't be on St. Claude anymore, but they'll be starting up again soon. But then there's the paper machine, which uh, makes print work and sells. I think the artists out of there sell work. But, um, but yeah, there's all these great little local stores where you can buy, like Dutch Alley shows John Fitzgerald's. Um, letterpress work, as well as a variety of painted materials and, and also clothes. You can often buy screen printed clothes, you know, so you can buy your clothing but have it have a... Where can you know, buy screen printed clothes? Well, you can buy some at our opening on <laughs> Friday. <laughs> but also you can buy them at the Frenchman Night Market. Um, and I think uh, there's a bunch of other... Where Your Art has a, has a brick and mortar store. Um, we don't talk brick, uh, where your art in this uh, studio. I'll tell oh, you why later. Go okay. <laughs> um, um, Dutch Alley, our, our artist collective, have yeah, like we just mentioned them, but they have a lot of great people. Um, a fun way to get some good local art is to go to openings. And so the school on Japonica Street just had their opening. They have one every, four times a year. But that's, um, I think, 30 or 40 artists, and you can wander through their studios. And, again, a lot of their works for and sale. And up into the Art Egg um, mm, uh, yeah. big yeah. warehouse, and there must be, what, about 30 artists in there. And you just literally wander from studio to studio and all different kinds of things, from ceramics to, again, photography right. to big um, paintings right. to sculptures to so you can buy little works, or large. Ceramics yeah. works and so on. Yeah. yeah, functional or just wall art. I mean, really, whatever you're looking for, you can buy locally in this town. Or what you're not looking for. That's the yeah, fun that's part. Yeah, that's the fun part. Is what you're not looking for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I always go whenever I have any – birthday you know birthday presents i have to get i'm just i just go walk around and then you kind of get a nice night out and then you also might find what you're looking for that's a good point it's entertaining but i I really one of the reasons i got onto this whole issue of trying to promote people buying art is seeing the humongous crowds out on julia street for white linen Mm -hmm. night and art for art's sake and as any of the dealers will tell you the people who are out there on the street are not buying work for the most part. Right. For the most right? part. For right. the most For a white linen night for sure. But our other events definitely draw a, a crowd that's more um, uh, more collector-based. But white linen night's a different – it's totally different than any other art opening. It's not really an art opening anymore. It's, it's, it's a really – it's so. a little bit more like Mardi Gras than yeah. it is. Yeah. But we do that every first Saturday of the month. We have art openings on Julia Street where all of the galleries and the three, four, and 500 blocks of Julia Street are open to the public um, from 6 to 8, 6 to 9 p.m. And anyone's invited. You can come out and look at the art. The um, There's usually new shows opening each month. Um, for us, we – I mean, we're – Currently showing a photographer, Leslie Elliott-Smith, because of PhotoNola. There's PhotoNola exhibitions all over the city right now. So that's a good way to see some wonderful art and also some really affordable art if you wanted to take something home. or. or Let's let's stay on that for a minute because, as I said, I did forget to put that in my newsletter. So PhotoNola is a big festival of um, photography all over the city. It's probably one of the major 
um, exhibitions of photography in the world at this point? It's it's gotten really large. I know it's not just um, exhibitions. It's also portfolio reviews and seminars. And um, I'm not a photographer, so I, I have never gone to any of the events. But I know they do a lot beyond just exhibiting um, photography to kind of help the careers of photographers. So it's it's a wonderful event. And Jennifer um, Shaw has done a, a great job. They have a beautiful website. They do a great promotion of all of the photography exhibitions. Right. If you go to photonola.org, you can get the full schedule. And also, again, um, most people dabble in photography, especially now all our phones have such great um, capacity for both stills as well as video. And um, I think that uh, having the opportunity to, to show your work to critics and get advice that is one of the major offerings of PhotoNola is certainly worth it. So check into PhotoNola.org. And that event generally is on from the 12th through the 15th, and it's all over the city. Correct. And there's actually um, gallery um, a gallery stroll on Julia Street this Friday starting at noon at Jonathan Ferrara Gallery, and the artists are all going to be present to talk about their work. So you can start and go. Um, I think there's five galleries on Julia Street, and both the Ogden and the Contemporary Art Center will have um, artists there to talk about or the curators to talk about the exhibition. So that'll be a good time. It's Friday. To start. kind of get an overview. Yeah, and, and, to, and to meet the artists who made the work, too, and kind of become or feel more connected to what they've done not just see a beautiful image but know why they made why and how they made it that makes i just think that makes all the difference in the world again to to know the artist and understand better what an artist is doing because my husband has a way of talking about art he says that the best art is art that is is not obvious Mm -hmm. that you have to kind of work at understanding Mm -hmm. so uh, while we're on that um Pippin, tell me about your work. How would you, if I walked into your gallery and I said, okay, what is this work all about, Pippin? How would you answer that question? Um, well, I tend to work, make work about uh, the Gulf South, and so ecosystems in the Gulf South, and often focusing on the ways that um, human activities have in some way or another impacted those ecosystems. And some, sometimes it's just a dense ecosystem devoid of what we've done to those spaces, and sometimes it's... Um, uh, a simulated species extinction that I do as an installation. It's a full, I did it at the CAC, and it's a full room of ivory-billed woodpeckers that you get to take one home with you, and gradually the whole room goes extinct. So trying to think of ways to sort of play with these ideas. Um, I have a few of those birds. They've landed on my refrigerator. Because <laughs> I have them. magnets. Yeah, I love going around to all the houses in town. Usually there's at least one on a fridge. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. That's actually another interesting point, because, you know, my husband has a terrible habit since he doesn't sell um, scans of work. He gives it away like crazy. And oh, and his work is so great. I love it. Thank you for saying that. But yeah. you can't walk into our house really without Tannen uh, putting something in your hands as you walk out the door. <laughs> it could be nothing more than a uh, what he calls canned music where he takes a can uh, and, and cleans it out and, and puts crumples up the lid, puts it inside, closes the top up, and shakes it. So it's, it's just like it's a music maker, right? So it can be anything from something like that to a print or, or something. Uh, and I think a lot of artists do that because they really they do. Uh, it, it's important to, to see that work get out there. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and, and like and like you were saying about Lemieux Gallery, Christie's and Jordan. I mean, they do have this very wide price range where you see the work that's on the walls. It's you know, it's a professional gallery on Julia Street. It's beautifully displayed, and they have a smaller room with like a, a large amount of art. And there's flip books, and there's all these other you know ways. So it, usually, yeah, your price range is like you said, like within two hundred up. And yeah. and you and you show a lot of really exciting work. You know, like what Jean's talking about this sort of different ways of looking at things i feel like your your work deals a lot with the 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 south and like southern ideas but in a different way thanks Um, yeah it's i mean our focus is really it's louisiana and southern artists a lot of it is southern narrative work um we like beautiful objects and works of art but we also like work that's provocative and makes you think or makes you go back and take a second look um tell the tell the audience what narrative art means well it's not it it can be a number of different things but a lot of times there's a story to tell and it's not always an obvious story um a lot of times it's a f- it's figural work um which means work with uh, worth, sorry work with, work with people it. Uh-huh. in it yeah so yeah. you're looking at it's a when i say narrative work i'm usually talking about um a scene of something versus an abstract work of art so there could be a person there could be an animal or an object in it but it's um it goes beyond just um there there's a story there like i said yeah. 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 Um so what about online? I I I mean I I was really um I think we all had high hopes for what online was going to be all about when it first started a couple decades ago and we thought oh the world is opening up and and then the commercial interests all came in and kind of swooped in and made it um, irritating. And, of course, they steal our data and they made a, make us look at dumb ants over and over again. <laughs> that drives me totally nuts. However, you can't go on and look at art. But I haven't figured out yet how to see the kind of work that I would like to see. So I'll go, to, for example, to the Saatchi site. Mm-hmm. And there are some things on there that I like, and then there's a lot of things I don't like. But give me some idea of of where people can go online to see work and also, again, follow up on an artist that they see that is of interest and read about and, and uh, or her and, and understand better um, what artists are talking about. There's actually a great website that the um, our gallery and a number of other galleries in New Orleans are on. It's called Artsy, and it's not just a... Um, it's about art, art and exhibitions, but there's also um, reviews and different articles that are geared towards um, artists, but also um, gallerists and how to make art, how to promote art, um, all sorts of things. But it was started by gallery owners. So it's a nice way to follow artists. And there are artists on there that sell their work for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but there's artists on there that sell their work for hundreds of dollars. So there's a huge range of artists. The nice thing is you can follow an artist on there. So if you go on there and you find an artist you like and you follow them on Artsy, it'll um, send you an email update every time a new piece by them comes up or there's a new exhibition they're included in um, from all of their galleries, not just one of their galleries. And I find it's a nice platform to be on just to kind of um, have a wider re- reach for our artists. So uh, uh, tell me how somebody can learn the art of working with dealers because (laughs) i mean i think um you know it's uh again it's a little bit of a mystery to a lot of people it's a little off-putting to a lot of people but um an art dealer is somebody who cares about art who cares about artists who wants to make sure that the work gets out um uh, to people and and so um y'all are very knowledgeable 
and um, and can really help somebody can help open the door right. to well, the art world for people. Well, we we try. I mean, our goal is to connect the artists who we love and feel strongly about with people who respect and admire their work and who want to take it home with them and enjoy it um, for you know the rest of their lives. So, I mean, I feel like. As as a gallerist and a, um, a dealer, I form relationships not only with my artists but also with my collectors. And I have people that come in um, every year, sometimes multiple times a year, just because they know the kind of artists we show and they like the aesthetic of the gallery. Um, and then from working with them for, for years, I know kind of what they like. So if I get something comes through my door that I know like a specific client would like, I'd probably contact them and say, hey, you probably really like this artist because it's like these other artists that you like. Um, but it's a relationship. It's You know, I wish I got more um, of these horrible algorithmic pop-up ads on my site that were artworks instead of, you know, the same sweater that I happen to have shown some interest in at some point over and over yeah. and over again or pair of shoes. I, I just can't tell you how irritating so you I have get to with all that. So you have to click on more websites that have art on them because that's how I've ended up getting more of those. You're still going to get the shoes and stuff like that, but you'll get more well, ads. Well, tell from... me about that. Tell me about the, uh, some of the other websites. You mentioned um, Artsy. What, what there's, other ones I mean, are there? there are other... Um, well, there's like art.net. There's another website called First Dibs that's kind of um, that's extremely high end. It's not though. We're, oh, it is so. We're on there, and I don't think that Are everything you really? we have. Wait, I don't know how to find you on well, First Dibs. Well, all I ever see that's is the, that's the thing about that's the thing about First Dibs. They don't want you to find me on First Dibs. So it's about connecting people with the with the the pieces and not necessarily the gallery. So it's it's not about that's not a website about forming relationships with the galleries. That's just about selling uh, objects. But um, so you can't, you couldn't necessarily search for me, but you could search for our artists on there and find them on there. Uh, what are some of the more sort of avant-garde, edgier ones that again would have younger, um, less expensive artists? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, the ones I think Artsy is great. Um, I mean, Etsy is is. Definitely more crafts. It, it's craft, but there's actually there's a lot of art on there's there. There's a lot of art yeah. on there, and there's a lot of emerging artists on yeah. there. And I think um, a lot of people know Etsy. Yeah. yeah, they are. It's become pretty mainstream mm -hmm. at this point, and there's some things on there that probably sh shouldn't be on there, but I don't know what their guidelines are for how they accept artists and crafts or not. Like mm -hmm. some things seem like mass made, but how yeah. many artists um, do we? Do, does anybody have any idea how many artists we have actually practicing in New Orleans <laughs> at this moment? Oh, well, no. it's, it's got to so be over many. a thousand. Oh, oh it's, yeah. It's, I'd say well like, over. yeah, like thousands of artists yeah. in New Orleans. So, so with thousands of artists, everybody out there, you can find something that you might like, your partner in life might like, your kids might like, your business associate, your office mate, you know, I give art every year. I've been giving art for, I don't know, 20, 30 years of one form or another. Perfect. And it's, it can be anything from a, a serious work of art to a more crafts-based um, um, object or something I've made. I used to make stuff myself. Uh, don't do it as much um, at the moment, but I'm going to get back there soon. I swear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so um, I think that uh, I really – think there's a huge amount of work out there to choose mm -hmm. from and uh, if you start working at it and I'll tell you another thing uh, anybody who's ever collected anything will tell you that once they start 
collecting something, it leads to something else, and it leads to something else, and it leads to something else. So that was the one thing about the, the that film. I can't remember whether it's the cost or the price of everything, but they featured this one guy uh, who was a major collector, and and you kind of could see how he went from smaller, less interesting works to really big-time, serious, expensive work. Um, it, it, you you just, once you get into the habit and you feel comfortable and you have a sense of your own aesthetic and, and what else, uh, the aesthetics of other people, you, you really, it's just a wonderful, satisfying habit. And the art of giving in general is wonderful. We, that's why we love Christmas. It's not just getting things, right. it's giving. Giving is fun. And so to give art has a double value of giving something, but also um, helping to support this fabulous creative community that we have and we want to keep here. Absolutely. Absolutely. One more time on uh, uh, your event this weekend. Let's put that out there. Well, we both, right? We both have Friday events. Yeah, we do. You okay. go to both of them. <laughs> yeah. So go from one to the other. That's another thing, hopping around, gallery yeah. hopping. Yeah. Yeah, ours is uh, 7 to 9.30 at 139 Mealy Street in Araby. Mealy Street, guys, is just about, th- uh, I don't know, three or four blocks below the barracks. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's right by the old Araby bar. And so if you want to come down, what's really nice is we're right there on the levee. So you can come see art. You can go to the old Araby bar. You can walk around on the levee. It's really, really pretty down there. And it's Kate Harahan, Monique Champagne, uh, myself, Hannah Patterson, Hayden Riley, um, Jackie Groves, and Jackie Brown, uh, and Mara Laser. So there's a whole bunch of artists that are going to be there with their studios open and the gallery. Fantastic. So, yeah. And your Friday night? And it's actually Friday afternoon. The okay. gallery's uh, Photonolo Gallery stroll starts at noon at Jonathan Ferrara Gallery. Then they then go to Soren Christensen Gallery, our gallery, Lemieux Galleries. Um, and then I think they move after that a little break and then to the Contemporary Art Center and the Ogden Museum of Art. But all of the information is on Photonolo's website um, with the details. Party Central. Yeah. On Julia Street and Mealy Street. <laughs> Y'all be out there. Um, ladies, thank you very much for coming oh, in. Thank uh, you. I thank appreciate you. it very much. And I'm going to ask you to hold on for just a minute because I'm just going to introduce the rest of the show, and then I'm going to probably um... – so, um, folks, there was a, a conference here this, this past week. It was put on by the New York Times, um, and it was uh, called um, Cities of Tomorrow. And um, it was kind of um, – not exactly what I expected because here in the city of New Orleans, I thought we would focus a little bit more on the creative industries, but not everybody is as obsessed with that as I am. So it was more about um, the, the challenges that cities are facing in multiple ways, especially environmentally was a big part of uh, the evening. Um, so I was there and I had an opportunity to do an interview with Michael Kimmelman, who is the architectural critic for the New York Times. That was such a treat. Uh, seeing some of these um, really major writers that I read all the time was was really fun. But the most fun was John Baptiste, of course. And um, he was a character and also very interesting because he reminded me a little bit of, of Alan Toussaint, who was the kind of guy who was thoughtful in what he said. He was not a gabber, um, but he was expressive. And, and he talked about music in a way that Again, like we've been talking about art tonight, helped you uh, understand um, the significance of it on many different levels. And so um, you're going to hear now the interview that I did with Michael Kimmelman. 
um, that I did on site with him. And then follow that are going to be some excerpts of interviews with um, John Baptiste that were done by the New York Times um, national editor. And oh my goodness, I, I um, misplaced my notes, so I, I'm not going to recall his name, but um, uh, it's in my uh, Crosstown Conversations newsletter if you want to check, uh, check that out on our website. Um, but uh, John was um, just uh, really, really interesting, and these are just some clips of what he had to say, and I better shut up or else there won't be enough time for the interviews. So here goes Michael Kimmelman first, followed by John Batiste. So I'm uh, visiting with Michael Kimmelman, um, world-famous <laughs> architectural critic for the New York Times. I've been through a few of you, Paul Goldberger, <laughs> and um, is it Osofsky, was that his name? Or Osof, that's right. Yeah, he came here and tried to rescue Charity Hospital with us. Huh? We worked on it, but didn't quite make right. it. Um, so um, I was fascinated by your session with the mayors, uh-huh. because they were, all three of them, really full of solutions and ideas. And my first takeaway was, wow, I wish these folks worked together all the time. Because I think as they shared their ideas, it would mean it would mean so much for all of our cities. Did you take that away? Yeah, I mean, I think what you also sensed from that was that people uh, at the local level have common sense of uh, what it is like to deal with real problems, um, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, household by household, um, when problems are often translated on a federal level or even a state level, they can be abstracted and um, you can have um, conflicting interests. But I think uh, mayors and local governments basically share the same problems, whether they're Republican Especially or Especially if they've gone through catastrophes. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a galvanizing and, and it focuses the mind. But look, they're all in the business of trying to, you know, make sure everyone has a house and the streets are, uh, you know, are open and functioning and lights are turned on. And uh, so I think they gain strength from numbers. However, I also think that, um, you know, there are certain things, especially when you're dealing uh, with an issue like climate change or uh, natural disaster, that require um, assistance and participation on a, uh, another level, um, because the scale of the financial uh, and, and often manpower is is too large for um, mayors to deal with. And often, as came up in that discussion and, and others too, the issues often extend outside city limits. So you're dealing with large watersheds or you're dealing with rivers that flow through countries. And therefore, you can't just, you know, rely on an alliance of local interests um, to accomplish everything you need. The only thing I'll say to that, though, is that um, those local interests, all of them, intersect with the federal and the state. And I was fascinated to hear the Harris County guy, for example, talk about how difficult it was for them to get the state to understand their their needs. And, of course, we all uh, have had enormous exposure to San Juan and its issues yeah. and New Orleans. So um, I felt that they have that similar paradigm also of, of yeah. relating to those different entities. It's true. In San Juan, of course, you have the mayor who's in a different party from the governor, yeah. and the governor's interests are in public-private partnerships and private development, which is a solution, but maybe not the best solution when yeah. you're dealing with the scale of the problem. Yeah. In in the case of Harris County, you have really have Houston, a, a 
blue city in a purple county, now really a blue county, um, in a deep red state. Yeah. Although it's turning Louisiana too, of course. Yeah, yeah. and so, you know, there, it's very hard to... Look, everybody wants to, when I talk later in the day with the mayor of uh, San Diego and a council member from that was Tijuana, too, yeah. they don't want to talk about the, you know, the conflicts they have with the federal government or their... Yeah. Um, or, any other government. And they just want to focus on cooperation. That's understandable, but the truth mm-hmm. is that, as Ed Emmett said, there are going to be problems when you have a, a state or a federal government that has different political interests. So the other thing that uh, struck me was um, the mayor of San Juan talking about permanent solutions to recurring problems. Uh-huh. I mean, it's enough with, um, oh, let's start all over again and figure out how to deal yeah. with people who've been evacuated from their cities. Right. Um, and I really, that resonated for me. I, I worked on a lot of the planning post-Katrina here, yeah. every phase of it, and it was uh, just monumental experience. And then when I watched Houston and San Juan and I knew what they were going through and how long it was going to take, right. I was thinking, uh, to what extent are the lessons that we learned being shared with them? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, look, the truth is that every one of these catastrophes is also a huge opportunity, um, an opportunity to rethink uh, both infrastructure um, and also social and economic um, uh, problems that one has in a city. And, you know, in a way you can't solve any one of those things without addressing the others. You can't just build new housing out of a flood zone and think that everyone's going to be fine. You also have to deal with transit and schools and jobs. Um, so all these things are, are interrelated, and that means it's really complicated when you come out of a disaster and there are immediate needs to think in this integrated, holistic way, and then so suddenly so many other interests become involved. Um, and look, the answers are never easy. I mean, it's not, it's not like there is one solution that is going to fit everybody. Well, uh, and so to flip that just a little bit, though, you uh, have heard the story over and over again in many different contexts, so certainly in, in New York City, uh, where you, I presume, live, as well as um, dealing with these other communities. Is there something that stands out to you as a missing opportunity that really would make a difference for all of us, some kind of golden rule that has surfaced in your mind? I think it would be about education. I think fundamentally people don't understand the, the threats and also the opportunities. I just think people need to be educated in what um, in, in what they're facing. Because look, it's a perfectly human reaction to go through a terrible storm and even be flooded out of your house and think that was terrible but it's not going to happen again next week. Now in Houston you had areas like Ireland, which flooded three times in three years. And even there, I met people who were like, you know, I like my neighborhood, and uh, what's the chance that it's going to happen a fourth time? So I think part of it is just instructing people about what the threats are and having it really absorbed. And then that creates a basis by which people can begin to make other decisions. Where, where do we want to live? Where would we move? What would we want if we were to move? Um, 
But I, I think that people still don't really understand or absorb the full threat, and that's natural. I, I it's think hard. It a it's a time. hard message to accept because um, I think our first inclination is always to go home. Sure. And so it's hard. And to, look, the uh, storm goes away, the water goes away, and after a while, your life returns to something like normal. I watched that happen in uh, Camille, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Everywhere. Um, I mean, and you know, memories are short. There's a. There have been studies done of how long you have, opportunity-wise, to capitalize on a disaster before people just move on. Because people don't want to dwell on it. It's not like you mm -hmm. want to spend all your time remembering what happened. You just want to repair your house or whatever and, and get back to normal life. Have you ever personally been exposed to any kind of catastrophe like this in, in I mean, any not, way? Not in a home that I have lived in. I've never been flooded out. But I've never um, had a home that's been, saying an earthquake. I've been to earthquakes, and I've been to many sites of disasters. Um, and so I can I know what the devastation is. I can't say firsthand. That's a wood bench I'm knocking on. Um, I, I've suffered it. But I have seen enough to understand how devastating, incredibly devastating it is. So catastrophe seem in this um, year and, and years around us uh, to be um, a, a dominant factor that we're having to address. What other dominant factor do you feel we're having? We're faced with gentrification, of course, which is one of the products of, of uh, yeah. disasters. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I prefer the word displacement to gentrification. I think, mm -hmm. you know, gentrification is a complicated term that means different things in different contexts. I say that um, the real issue almost always comes down to displacement. <clears throat> you, you live in a city which um, it depends a lot on tourism. You you have a broken infrastructure. You need to increase your tax revenues and to bring in other populations here without threatening the people who are most vulnerable and who want to remain in their communities. So the, the issue is displacement. It's not necessarily that you don't want people to come here who will contribute to the community. But I think, yes, so of course that's always an issue, balancing this question of uh, new populations and new money destabilizing. Uh, but I think the larger issue is that we are dealing with, um, you know, a political climate that makes um, even very basic conversations difficult. Um, it's very easy to be distracted and to allow um, the wrong narratives to, to dominate. Um, and, you know, we're, we're running out of time. <laughs> We're running out of time. On that note, <laughs> we're running out of time. Yeah. And I appreciate that you took some time to talk my, with my me and my audience at WBOK. Everybody thank Michael Kimmelman for sharing his thoughts. What is this that you have in your hand here? This is uh, what I like to call a harmonica board. There's many names, melodica, harmonica chord. It's like a harmonica and a keyboard put together.
so we do have something in common. It's not musical ability, um, but but my father was a bass player. Your father was a bass player. Yes. And yes. I, we were talking earlier about how when my father would listen to music, he heard that bass always, and he would the grooves. Yeah, the groove. Is, is that how do you listen to music? Talk a little bit about how you listen. So there's different ways of listening to music for me. There's the uh, surface level of listening to it, which is the melody and the rhythm and harmony. Those yeah. are the basics of music. And I've studied that backwards, forwards, inside out. And I still study it to this day. So every time I hear something, I can't turn that part of my brain off. Even if I'm in the airport, like I was in the airport, I, I constantly use Shazam talking about technology, just to discover music that I'm not familiar with and figure out how it's put together, you know, read the liner notes or try to even find an article online of, of how they constructed the music. So that part of my brain is always working. Um, but then I also like to listen to music from the perspective of what experience did this come from? Uh, what was the environment that uh, gave these people the inspiration to create this music? And that's really interesting to me because that's where all music comes from. Before it was commodified, before it was something that you buy tickets to or you sell merch based on, it was something that was a part of the fabric of everyday life. You know, there was music to um, dance to, but there's also you know music to sleep to, music to eat to, music when someone's born, music when someone dies. In New Orleans, I really love how our culture, some way, has maintained that as the fabric of the community even to this day. Um, so I'm always listening to music from that place as well, because coming up in an environment where music was just in, in, in the air, you know, uh, I, I'm always listening to the music to figure out how does this connect to the performer's life? What is it that they were going through when this happened? Yeah, and, and if there's a piano over there. I have a feeling <clears throat> it may be there for a reason. But you have this uh, instrument in your hand. How many instruments do you play? Piano uh, is my main instrument. I, I picked up the bass, um, being around the house. Started on percussion, uh, drums, this, uh, saxophone. I, I play a few. You dabble. <laughs> so you grew up uh, right here. How far from where we sit? So here's my beef. Kenner, Louisiana is where I was born, uh -huh. um, and that's where the airport is, but it's New Orleans International Airport, but it's really Kenner. Uh, uh, Kenner is a small suburb, it's like 10 minutes outside of the city. I grew up there, and um, in between there and New Orleans, going to school, going into New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, and St. All, Marching 100. And, yeah, it's, it's like that. But uh, I, I, I really just was um, always into music, but I didn't really think it would be a profession that I would pursue full time until I was 17, 16 or 17, and I moved to New York. Yeah, you went to a, a, a school that we may have heard of there in New York. Yeah, so I went to New York mainly to um, just get into a scene the scene of all of the different records that I was listening to, it seemed like they were either made in LA or New York. So I wanted to get to New York City, and um, one way of doing that is, is studying. So I, I applied to go to the Juilliard School, and I went to the Juilliard School, put my band together, 
and um, just went out, sought a lot of people out. And uh, you know, that was really the beginning for me. So is your music, um, if we studied it, a mixture of New Orleans and New York? Is that you? Those experiences. The, the music, I, I, I'll draw from anything. I, uh, or rather, I'll steal from anything, really. <laughs> I, I love all types of music. I constantly make playlists and curate sounds and experiment with different sound combinations. But really, my experiences have been this city and New York combined. Because moving to New York at 17, I've kind of developed a lot of my artistry in the prime years as an artist, you know, from like 17 to 25, 26. You're, you're really finding your voice. And New York really influenced that. You know, we, we used to do all kinds of stuff. Um, I remember when I graduated from Juilliard the second time, I wanted to figure out a way to take the music that we were doing in like these uh, concert halls and, and, and jazz clubs and things like that and take it to the people. So we would play concerts, full concerts on the moving subway train. Wow. Take the whole band with the tuba and the tambourine. <laughs> And I couldn't take the piano, so I'd take this, and we would play 30 minutes in, in the train. And that experience is, um, is something that developed just being in New York and riding the train and just feeling the energy of the city and, and feeling like my music could fit into that, plugging it in like an audio Lego, you know? And then after, after you know, that developed, we started to march from the venue after our shows for the encores, we would take the audience maybe a mile or two up the street. Um, and we started calling these things love riots. But anyway, that's just one example of me living in New York and it influencing my creativity and my artistic voice in a very direct way. We won't be doing a love riot here, will we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Okay, 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 I'm not going to stop it. Um, you, the, I've never met you before, um, but feel like I know you because I see you every night. And you must get that a lot. Oh, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're there on the late show um, night after night. How has that um, affected your musical style? You have musicians coming on every night. Has it cramped your style? You're, you're sort of there, you, you have this commitment every day to be on a show. How are you different because of that uh, night show, late show experience? Oh, wow, yeah. It, the, the beginning was, was a, a transition for sure because I graduated in 2011 and we started doing the late show, or we started to build up to doing the late show in 2014. And this was when I was about 25 or 26. So I'd never really had a, a job. I was touring before that, but never where I had to be. We do 202 shows a year. Wow. Uh, and we write the show the morning of the show. And Oof. we tape it at 5 o'clock. So for me, that was brand new. Um, amongst another set of responsibilities as a music director. Also being a cast member with Steven and, and really, you know, he's one of the greatest improvisers in the world. Um, just, just being on stage with him and watching his process and trying to work in his process, all of this stuff took us maybe a year to figure out. But now it's, it's interesting because the collaborations that we do are, are so vast and it really teaches me about the things that I've developed with the band over the years. For instance, you know, we, we were um, 
fortunate enough to collaborate with Mac Miller a few times before he passed. His last television performance was with us on the show. And we put arrangements together with him, we put arrangements together with Yo-Yo Ma, Isaac Perlman, just a rank from Mac Miller and Anderson Park to Yo-Yo Ma and everything in between, Willie Nelson. And they all come to us with an idea, but the thing that I learned was they're listening to me and saying, well, how do you do that? How can you put that in my song? Can you try? So I figured out the things that are special about our band and what we do, and we just refine those because we're doing 202 shows a year, this is the fourth year. We're the tightest that we've ever been and all these things like the Love Riot concept, my concept of social music, and the way that I see music has really been solidified and all the artists that I collaborate with really see that. So we kind of learn from each other. It's been a real good incubation for the band and um, also a good lesson in, in show business. Now you wrote uh, for the New York Times a couple, last year, last year about uh, Fats Domino, yeah. what he, he had just passed and what he meant for you and mm -hmm. uh, t t talk a little bit about that. What, 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 is there a song of his that, that's always in your head? What did he mean to you? Wow, that's, that's a lot. There's a lot there because you have to go back into the history of what we call rock and roll. And the idea that rock and roll is now predominantly looked at as one thing, but it started out as something that was created by arguably two black guys from the South, you know, Chuck Berry and Fast Domino, created rock and roll. And aren't really recognized in that same way. Uh, just what they had to come, come through, what, what they had to overcome, and the, the level of genius that they were is something that's admirable to me. There's a lot of grace in that. Yeah, a lot of grace in being able to face that kind of duress and oppression with dignity. Yeah. Um, and then to allow the legacy to move forward by getting out of the way of that and letting petty things lay. And, and move forward so that a guy like me can come about and you know last year do a tribute to them on the Grammys and have the platform that I have playing the music that I play carrying the torch that I carry to have the platform that I have means that so many people have to deal with things that were below them um, so to me there's a lot that can be said about that um, besides the music just being very healing music music is something that is a universal language, and he obviously knew how to make that language speak across generations, across cultures, all of the different barriers that you could put in the way of that, especially at that time. What, what song, what's the song that we can't... Uh, it's impossible. Wow. I, I like, I'm walking, you know, I'm walking. Yes, yes, indeed, I'm um, talking. Hey, somebody know <laughs> about you and me. Hey, go ahead on. Oh, God, say what, key. <laughs> I, I, I like, I like, I like that because you hear, you know, you hear the motion of the song in the lyric, and and there's something about that. He's carrying on. I'm going forward. There's a lot of problems in the world today, and and there's a lot of problems in cities, and and you seem very optimistic, though, and can, can music be part of 
of actually lifting up cities? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. In the sense of um, inspiring people to go out and, and take action, music has always been a soundtrack of movements. And music has always been a way for people to endure hardship and figure out how to really connect to their humanity when, or really affirm their humanity when everything around them is trying to squash their humanity. And that's one of the things that I love about music that keep me optimistic is that in any situation, music can be used as a reprieve and as a bomb. So that's the one thing that um, I think music will always be used for um, beyond just entertainment. This is Gene Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations coming to an end on WBOK, and I will visit with you again next week.